centaurs. They were part man, part horse. It's an absurd combination, yet strangely something we can all visualize. With the tail, body, and legs of a horse, they look like a man from the waist up. Sometimes they're depicted as having pointed ears like a satyr. Episode after episode, I've avoided featuring these shaggy beasts. Yet avoiding them has done no good. For months, in the back corners of my mind, they've cavorted and danced across the ancient fields of northern Greece. They're demanding their own moment of recognition. Yet how is this possible? They would have roamed the rugged wilderness of Greece thousands of years ago. Of all the Greek monsters and contorted beasts that populated ancient Greece, centaurs, to me, are the saddest, the coarsest, and the loudest of all. This episode rides into those wild fields, those dense forests, in search of these untamed, savage, half-horse beings. But... As we'll see, not every centaur was a savage. One in particular was clever, learned, and so insightful that he became the mentor to many of Greece's earliest heroes. This is episode 37 of Garner's Greek Mythology. We have listeners from 150 countries, so welcome to everyone wherever you are. I'm your host, mythologist and best-selling author, Patrick Garner. These stories about the gods have been told for thousands of years, but now there are new stories that are as compelling. If you haven't already done so, check out my books about the gods in the contemporary world. They're part of the Winnowing Trilogy. You can read about them and about this podcast at patrickgarnerbooks.com. And as always... This podcast focuses on one thing, Greek gods, of course. They, like you, are here now. The Greeks called them centauroi, a word partly derived from taurus, the Greek word for bull, and one suggesting strength. They were creatures that lay somewhere between savages and humans. The Greeks described them as beast-like, yet they had the minds of men. There's some interesting physiology at work here as well. Centaurs had the lower body of a horse and the trunk and head of a human. Yet wherever you put them on the spectrum between beast and human, they were infamous for their bad behavior when they began to drink wine. We've seen part beasts and part humans before. Remember the Minotaur? We discussed him in an episode featuring Thesis. Unlike the centaurs, the Minotaur's lower half was human, while his trunk and head was that of a horned bull. He was particularly feared for his food preferences, which favored young boys and girls brought to his lair each year as tribute. Other human-like creatures of ancient Greece included satyrs that had a goat-like rear and walked upright on their hind legs. Unlike centaurs, they played musical instruments and 
were devoted to the wine god Dionysus, but like the centaurs, the satyrs adored wine and were mocked by the Greeks for their constant drunkenness. Centaurs were not always drunk, but they were reclusive. They favored areas far from villages. Their weapons were crude. Instead of using swords or battle axes, they swung tree branches and threw rocks. They were scattered around Greece. One area where they gathered was the mountainous region of Thessaly in northern Greece. Homer called the area Aeolia. The second place was the Peloponnese in southern Greece. And a third location was on the island of Cyprus, far across the Mediterranean. The far-flung centers there were horned. What's their origin? We first have to begin with the centaur Charon, the most famous of the centaurs. He was an immortal son of the titan Cronos and therefore a half-brother of Zeus. The tale of Charon's creation was a bit messy. Cronus was almost caught by his wife in the middle of an affair with a nymph. To escape detection, he transformed himself into a horse. It worked. He fooled his wife and she moved on. Once she was out of sight and without changing back, Cronus consummated the affair. The resulting child was this horse-man combination whom he named Sharon. When Sharon was grown, he too took up with nymphs, and his offspring were daughters. All looked like their mothers in appearance. That is, none were born as centaurs. This is a good point to stop and ask, were any centaurs female? This was probably invented. Hesiod and Homer never spoke of anything other than male centaurs. Perhaps the invention of female centaurs was to soften their savage image or to introduce a salacious component. We've now seen how Sharon came into being, but what about the rest of the centauroi? They were spawned similarly, but by different parents. There's a story, of course. Let's look at how it happened. In its earliest days, Thessaly had a king named Azion. The king fell in love with Zeus's wife, Hera. Furious with Azion, Zeus created a cloud nymph to resemble his wife. King Azion was completely tricked by Zeus and violated the nymph, believing she was Hera and that it was he who had fooled Zeus. The coupling made the nymph pregnant. In time, she bore a son she named Centauros. He was a normal-looking child. She deposited him on Mount Pelion. Once grown, he, like his father, had a lustful eye and turned it to the native horses there. Their offspring became the centaurs, taking their name from Centauros. Their place of birth was fortuitous, as it had been chosen by Sharon as his home. There they were nursed by Sharon's daughters until they grew into what became the first tribe of the fearsome centaurs. Getting back to King Aizion, Zeus wasn't one to let bygones be bygones. 
Isaiah was expelled from Zeus's sight and blasted with a thunderbolt for trying to seduce Hera. He lived, but before he could escape, Zeus ordered Hermes to bind the king to a fiery wheel where he spins eternally. Let's return to Sharon. Remember that he was the son of Cronus, one of the greatest titans, but he was also, by far, the wisest of the centaurs. His name was derived from the Greek word share, which meant skilled with the hands. Share was also closely associated with the Greek word surgeon. He was a celebrated teacher who mentored many of the greatest names in early Greek history. Over time, his students included the famous physician Asclepios, the Argonauts Jason and Pelus, and Greece's most renowned warrior, Achilles. Sharon was believed to have invented medicine. In the first century AD, the Roman writer Pliny the Elder said, quote, the science of herbs and drugs was discovered by Sharon, the son of Cronus. A Roman historian in the second century AD wrote, quote, Sharon, son of Cronus, first use herbs in the medical art of surgery. And Homer himself attributed medicine applied during the Trojan War to the teachings of the most righteous of the centaurs. Sharon taught Asclepius, Greece's first physician. Asclepius was Apollo's son and was brought to the centaur with a request that he raise him to become a healer. Medicine was clearly one of Sharon's specialties, but he hardly confined himself to teaching herbs and surgery. For instance, he was entrusted with raising the famous adventurer Jason, who went on to command the Argonauts. Hesiod, Homer's contemporary, wrote of the hero, quote, Jason, shepherd of the people, whom Sharon brought up in woody Pelion. As great as Sharon's achievements had been up to that point, they paled comparison to his success in raising the warrior Achilles. The young boy was brought to Sharon by his father, Peleus, at the age of six. Peleus was king of Pythia and the husband of the sea nymph Thetis. Thetis, frequently subject to bouts of depression, abandoned her child. Peleus, in desperation, entrusted the boy Achilles to Sharon. Achilles proved to be an exceptional student. As soon as he could walk, he could outrun rabbits. Before he reached puberty, he fought lions and bears, always winning. The tales of his achievements rapidly spread throughout Greece, and Sharon, in turn, proved to be an outstanding teacher particularly in training the boy to use swords and spears. Spears. That reminds me, let's leap briefly from ancient Greece to 5th century England. 
There, the future King Arthur performed a miraculous feat to prove he was worthy of becoming king. Almost 2,000 years earlier, Achilles had done something similar. It's likely that King Arthur's feat was no more than a myth stolen directly from the Greeks. The English legend is that as a young man, Arthur drew out a mighty sword embedded in an anvil. Nobles and warriors from all over the land had tried it and failed. Arthur did so easily. The wizard Merlin had stated that none but the future king would be able to extract the sword. Arthur did so, stunning all who watched and was immediately appointed king. When Achilles' father, King Pelus, died, he left a mighty spear leaning against the wall of the throne room. No one had the strength to lift it, let alone wield it against an enemy. Achilles, though, while still in his teens, strode into his father's chambers, easily lifting it over his head and hurled the immense weapon hundreds of feet. His father's military leaders fell to their knees. Such proof of strength allowed Achilles to instantly take command. He'd been trained well. The Roman writer Seneca said that Sharon, quote, wedded the boy's mighty passions by songs of war. By the time of the Trojan War, Achilles, always giving the old centaur credit, was acknowledged as the greatest warrior that Greece had ever produced. His companions in Troy would be Odysseus, Agamemnon, and Patroclus. His favored weapon would be his father's mighty spear. Regardless of Sharon's skills, he was an outlier among the centaurs. None of the others were his equal in strength or intellect. He was a consummate warrior, able to teach Jason and Achilles bravery, swordsmanship, and spear throwing. His sophistication was singular. The other centaurs hardly compared with their tree limbs and rocks as weapons. They were never a match for Sharon. In fact, their clumsiness and loudish behavior eventually brought their ruin. Plutarch, writing in the second century AD, described their undoing. A local king was about to be married and invited Theseus, a hero known as widely as Achilles, to the wedding feast. Plutarch explains that the king also, quote, invited the centaurs to the wedding feast, and they became sodden with insolence and wine, and laid hands upon the women, unquote. It gets worse. The centaurs grabbed the women by the hair, trying to drag them off into the fields. As Plutarch notes, the men in the king's party, including Theseus, quote, took vengeance upon them. Some of them they slew upon the spot. Some accounts claim the centaurs were almost wiped out. But old Sharon had not attended the party, and his end came about differently. The immortal Sharon had remained on Mount Pelion, avoiding the wedding feast, 
But soon, wounded centaurs dragged themselves home. They were pursued by Theseus. In addition, Greece's greatest hero, Heracles, joined them, unaware that his dear friend Sharon was hiding nearby. One of Heracles' arrows hit the old centaur. The arrow's tip had been dipped in hydra venom, and there was no antidote. After the battle, Heracles found the famous centaur writhing in agony. He tried curing him with prayers, herbs, and potions, but nothing worked. Sharon's pain only worsened. He couldn't die. He was, after all, immortal, but his pain was unbearable. Finally, to escape the agony, he bravely surrendered his divinity and embraced death. In gratitude for his services, Zeus placed the centaur among the stars as the constellation Centaurus. And in the memory of men Sharon lived on, he was depicted on pottery and in plays and sculpted by numerous Greek and Roman artists. As time passed, he became more and more celebrated. Homer and Hesiod memorialized him in their tales as a fierce, shaggy half-horse who taught men bravery, the fundamentals of medicine, and the principles of war. That he came to an end as a bright constellation in the ancient Greek night sky was fitting. There, Sharon could continue to dazzle all who look overhead. Join me for the next episode of Garner's Greek Mythology. If you love what you hear, be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com. It's all about your favorite Greek gods, a discussion of this podcast, and more about my three novels. By the way, my books about the Greek gods are as entertaining as my podcasts, and all are available on Amazon. By the way, here's a great alternative to reading. Get my Audible book, Homo Divinitus. You can find it at Amazon or Audible. And thanks for listening. This is your host, Patrick Garner. <laughs>